Please turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3 and find verse 22 through chapter 4, verse 1, where we'll focus our attention this morning. And just to prepare you, we're not going to get very far. We'll spend a few weeks on a topic that oozes out of our text, but is often very uh, misrepresented and misunderstood in so many Christian lives today. What's the topic? How about work? In our world, work appears to be something that should be avoided at all costs. To much of our society, work is the problem. Children are taught, whether implicitly or explicitly, that doing the smallest amount of work possible while maintaining personal happiness is the ideal. Hard work, especially hard work that you don't enjoy, is seen as damaging to mental health and harmful to our overall well-being. But the problem we face in the church is that work in the church is often viewed just like that. God's blessings go so far as Florida vacations and healthy children and early retirement, but work, well, that's not a blessing. Work is hard because the curse has come, we kind of think. We don't need to embrace work. It's just a necessary evil that we have to plow through. But Christian, we've slowly allowed our worldly our a-worldly understanding of work to creep in and steal from us our divine creator's goodness to us in the creational gift that he's given us in work. After all, who views work, the daily grind, as good? Maybe that odd man or woman who have happened to stumble upon the job that paid them to do what they love to do and they would do regardless of if they got paid or not. But they're the outliers they're the exceptions. They're not the norm nor the rule. The rest of us carry the necessary burden of the ball and chain we call a job until we can receive the temporary reprieve we call a vacation in hopes of the eternal rest we look for in retirement. How puny our view of work has become as Christians. The purpose of work has disappeared from the Christian worldview. Or the purpose of work has been so diluted that it feeds us like a meal of ramen noodles when God has prepared it for us like a ribeye. It gets us by, but there's no joy in work, no godly pride in work, no satisfaction in work. Only satisfaction in those things that come from work that we buy with our money. Or there's the other extreme where work to the Christian and the competition therein and the production thereof and the excitement of the earthly creation measured in empirical values that show them performance, that's all that excites them. It drives them. Work infatuates some. It saturates their life. It invigorates their soul to the degree that God is merely the one who holds the future and someday we'll worry about him, but carpe diem, seize the day. Work is the modern battlefield where heroes are formed and nations are conquered and respect is earned. Either work is worthless to some or work is all that matters to others. What if I told you both of these views are pulling Christians into lives of insignificance in light of eternity? Work. What do you do more than work? There's one thing, sleep. If you're a normal American, 
outside of sleep, you don't do anything more than work. The normal routine in our culture puts the priority of time while you're awake on work. 49 weeks a year, you work so you can spend three weeks a year playing. That's pretty lame. Christian, can there be anything we need to understand outside of our corporate worship better than our work? Anything that we do with our hands, with our lives outside of worship, the what do we do more than work? Does God speak into your work? Where does God's priority for his glory find its effect in your professional career? If you're not saving babies from certain death or leading evangelistic crusades in massive urban centers, does God even get glory from your work? Do street sweepers and heart surgeons and stay-at-home moms have the same opportunities to glorify God? Are young people schooled in a theology of work today? Or are they told to follow their heart and chase their dreams and make as much money as they can and then, of course, give 10%? If that's how we think, we're in trouble. And unfortunately, that's how we think. Christians, both our work and our hearts are important to God and designed by God to give him glory and to benefit us and others in his world. Do you know how? Is there glory in your grind? Well, if there's not, stand with me and see from God's word how we can really live the glory in the grind from Paul. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. We'll read through chapter 4, verse one, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is for us to be your children, to come to you, to worship you, to hear from your word what our Savior has done for us, to see in your word how we can live for you, but we need your help. These things are not natural to us. Our flesh dilutes the truth and pulls us and distracts us, and the world is not seeking to help us, and so we ask for your wisdom. We ask for your spirit to make clear how we're to live in ways that are best for us, in ways that honor and glorify you, especially today, and as we consider work, help us. We need it. We want to live lives of purpose, lives that matter. But we need your truth to instruct us in what this is. So we ask for your help. Help our hearts as we consider these things to be prepared to remember our Savior, to remember his death, to remember him as risen and reigning for us. Help us, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, thank you. You can be seated. The glory in the grind, part one. Whether you're retired, still in school, in the heart of your career, 
It doesn't matter. I trust God will help you over the next several weeks to see how your work and your labor and your toil and your grind must ultimately glorify him. And as we work ourselves into this passage, I hope you understand that it's broad enough in scope and deep enough in eternal truth to change every aspect of your whole life. This is not a how to be a good employee series. To me, that's stupid. You want to be a good employee, find a bad company and go do the right thing. You'll be a good employee. You want to win employee of the month. Why? Or do you want to live for eternal truth? You want to live for the eternal glory of God. That's what this passage is teaching us. Not something temporal, not a move yourself up the ladder, but a look at what I have done because of what God has done and how I can glorify him because of who he is and who he's made me. That's what you'll see in this passage. This is how to display and magnify and glorify the eternal God through your temporal work. I want to give you the big picture first, and then we'll take a peek at a few of the nuts and bolts, and then we'll just try to orient our minds in the text, and we'll dip our toes into it this morning. But what's the big picture of this passage? Well, really, Colossians chapter 3 is a big, giant unit, and it's held together in the middle by verse 17. Look up at Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is one of those verses that points back and it points forward. It points back to the amazing truths that we see in Colossians chapter 3, uh, the context of our heavenly mindset, our corporate body life, our personal pursuit of sanctification. But it also points forward. It points forward to what we've looked at in the family and the home and fathers and mothers and Husbands and wives and kids all living for Christ. Verse 17 says all of it is for God. And from home to marriage to family, it's all for God. But somehow when we get to work, it kind of changes. Somehow when we get to work, it's kind of like, well, I don't know. I work for Walmart, not Jesus. But just as our home and our marriage and our kids are not about our home and our marriage and our kids, but they're about Jesus, so our work is not about your employer. Your work is about Christ. Nothing changes when we start to talk about work, but I have a burden for many of you because I talk to you and I hear you talk about your work and I realize you don't believe that. You may check that box on a test, but you don't live that box with your life. I'm not God, obvious statement, but I can tell he is not getting glory from your grind. Some of you may be more honoring to the Lord unemployed. That's not a compliment. I get it. Some of you don't like your job. Some of you think your job is not fulfilling. Some of you think your job is not exciting. Some of you know your job is not essential. Some of you just don't like your work. I can identify. My first job, praise the Lord, I can say it was my first job because I got another one, but my first job was not fun. It was hard. It was ugly. It was stinking. It was either hot or it was cold. It was always dirty. First regular job I had where somebody actually paid me to do something was shoveling horse poop. <laughs> Only one way to go from there. Nowadays, you put that on a resume. You can call it an equine hygiene specialist. That's what I was. <laughs> but I remember I was in junior high, and it was winter, and it was cold. It was right about the time, right about the temperature where it's starts to sleet. So we're talking like 35-ish. I mean, it was just miserable. And I'm dumping this giant blue fairy cart of scubalon into a big pile of poop and wood chips. 
And I'm getting ready to go back into the barn to clean another stall with this mare that I knew so well, I knew where she was going to poop. That knowledge to a junior high boy is humbling. I started to think, I know where a horse is going to poop. What have I done with my life? Where am I going? I hope it's up because this is not good. It started to cause me to, to really evaluate. My, some people are horse people, I know. I'm not one. They do not have souls, believe it or not. Anyway, we can, that's another sermon. But it's demoralizing when you know where an old broodmare is going to poop. When you know exactly what you need to do and it's not clean, it's yuck. And that's your job? So when you tell me you don't like your job, I, I get it. My attitude about that job, as you can guess, wasn't very good. In fact, if my employment wasn't secured by nepotism, I probably would have lost the job. But to quote a great theologian named Dr. Bookman, here's my point. We often, I thought that was funny, come on. <laughs> we often fail to see how our work impacts eternity. And as Christians, we cannot fail to see how our work impacts eternity. So I want you to watch over the next couple of weeks as Paul thoroughly and, and comprehensively proves that our occupations, no matter how demeaning they may be or how exalted you may think they are, all of our occupations should be all the time opportunities to worship God through what we do how we do it, and why we do it. As I've been out of the pulpit the last few weeks, I've been able to study up on work and read a lot of old dead guys on work and been amazed at how they viewed work and how puny and anemic we view work. We don't really have a grip on why work matters according to God's word. And that's a problem as God's people, because then we take the view of work that the world has and the world is confused. We know work is important, but we really aren't that sure why. We know work is important. Imagine or consider the question we often ask young people. What do we ask them? What do you want to be when you grow up? Deep in our souls, we find a connection between what we do and who we are. The world has gone back and forth on this throughout the ages, but the Bible would agree there's a connection between who we are and what we do. For example, if we love Jesus, we will obey him. John chapter 14, verse 15. Who we are, a lover of Jesus, determines what we do. We obey him. There's an intrinsic link between occupation and identity. But be very careful because the Bible doesn't define that link between occupation and identity the same way the world does, nor the relationship between what we do and who we are, how the world does. To the world, the president is more valuable and has more to offer than the one who waits on his table at the banquet. But I would guarantee to you that that is not always how God views it. The Bible wouldn't agree because God doesn't value us because of what we do. He values us because of who we are in him. And because of who we are in him, we have every opportunity to always live for him in everything. Remember Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. 
after Paul has ooed us and awed us with the glory of, the, uh, of God's work in the gospel, uh, where we were dead sinners, but God made us alive uh, because of what Christ has done, and we rightly understand this salvation by grace, through faith, in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, what, what comes after that? For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I wonder, do you think this is only referring to that time on a Wednesday night when you were serving in kids club and you led a little kid to the Lord? Is this only talking about when you mow your neighbor's lawn, you take them a cake and you share the gospel with them? Is this only talking about true and real full orb fellowship where you're praising the Lord together? Is that what this is talking about? Is that it? Or does God have more dominion over your life than that? Is this only talking about the mission trip, only talking about stocking the food bank? Surely not. Surely God has put more than those marker things in our lives in front of us to do for him and for his glory. Often our big ticket service items to God that we call good work make up a puny little part of our life. Does that mean the rest of our lives are not lived for him? Paul says that God prepared beforehand good works that we should walk in them. Walk in them. It's the normal pattern of your life. Every day, all the time, pursuing these good works for him. God has provided for you good works in front of you so that you could successfully praise him through your labors in this life. What does that sound like? Well, for many of you, it's your job. And you say, well, my job is, is just the baker. Or my job is just a banker. Or my job is just a teacher. Or my job is just a cop. Or my job is just a lawnmower. Or my job is just a mom. Or my job is just a doctor. Or my job is just a equine hygiene specialist. You say that in your job, you don't have the opportunity to do these good works for God. Really? God says in your work, you have the good work that you can do to glorify God him. And you say, but I'm not the best at my job. I struggle at my job. No one looks at me and says, I'm the best employee. I'm on my fifth career and I'm still in my 20s. So I'm just not that great at what I do. Well, I don't want to trivialize work at all. And I'll backfill this idea in a couple of weeks, but consider the father and child paradigm in which we live with God. We're no longer enemies of God, but as children. And we don't work so that he will love us. We work because he loves us. He is pleased with us. And we love to work on his behalf. Imagine if my son draws a picture of a Jeep and it looks more like a Mazda Miata. I'm still going to be impressed and absolutely love it and put it somewhere where you're going to have to look at it. Why? Because it's my son. God looks at us and our work in a similar way. You think, well, I'm not the best. Here's the, take that weight off your shoulders. You don't have to be. Don't fail to remember that in your work, your heavenly father is receiving your efforts and your products with a fatherly affection. Because not only did God go to great lengths to save us, but to put in front of us good works that glorify him. And as you'll undoubtedly agree, second work, especially in our culture, has fallen on hard times. 
For many young people, work is something to be avoided at all costs. But can we be honest that our older people have taught them this truth? Climb the ladder, culture says. But why? Well, so you can do less and be paid more. Save all your money, work extra, get another job, take the overtime, why? So that you can get an early release, I mean an early retirement from the bondage of your vocation. Everything in our society seems to point to the goal of getting rid of work. Young people have merely connected the dots to find that the problem is work. Christian, this is an anti-God statement to think the problem is work. God has created you, young and old, for work. Does that mean it never changes? It doesn't adapt or work shouldn't fit your age and your ability? Of course not. All those things determine how you work. Does it mean that we should always punch the clock? No. Enjoy the freedom that God has given you, but use it for him if you have it. And if you're able to retire, you have the freedom to work in ways that you couldn't before in life. And you should take every advantage for the Lord. Understand, work is not a believer's enemy at any stage of life. Young to old, work is an opportunity to honor and glorify God with every effort of your life. In our modern times, another sentiment is this. Third, work is bad unless it feels good. Work has been separated from the activity and the dignity of a process that produces something that benefits others, benefits God, glorifies God, and is good in our efforts. There are many factors here, whether you blame the Industrial Revolution and the subsequent urbanization of humanity, or you blame the specialization of labor or the technological revolution. All of these may be factors, but they aren't the factors that God allows to take dignity away from the work he created us to do. Since the process and the product has been separated from the work, the feeling that we get from our work rules over how we view our Work, And when our heart rules and our heart is allowed to be the final say and judge over anything, we mess it up. Listen to William Perkins. He is a kingpin of early Puritan theology in the early 1600s. And he says, the main end of our lives is to serve God in the serving of men in the works of our callings. And this is a profound statement when it was said, because this is right on the heels of the Reformation, right on the heels of totally dismantling the view of society that the church at that time had supported, that there's two works, secular and sacred. You guess which one matters, only the sacred. So unless you're a nun or a monk or a priest or a friar or whatever, unless you have a funny robe and a haircut, you have no business glorifying God with your vocation. And the Puritans came along, they read their Bibles, and they're like, hold up a minute. Actually, all of us should always be doing everything for the glory of God in all that we do, especially in what we call a vocation. But how often today do our work goals begin and end with work? How often do our work goals begin and end with me? Perkins is right when he reminds us we work for God and God uses our work for the good of his creation in a way that he deems is best. 
Your feelings toward your work need oriented by the truths, by, but your feelings about work don't determine the dignity of your work. How can we say that? Well, because God's our example. And work is good according to God. Work is good according to God. Just imagine his example. The second word in the Bible describes what? <clears throat> work. Bereshith bara. in the beginning, he created. Who created? God did. What would you call creation? How about work? God worked. You have his identity. He is eternal. And you have his activity, his vocation, his work. Don't be afraid of work, friend. You're created in the image of the ultimate worker, God. God displays his goodness through his work. Do you think created in his image that you were not created to work? There's this feeling that I get from some of us that only when we come together as the church are we able to make much of God. Part of that's really true. When we come together as a church, we're able to make much of God. But if we ever slap only in front of that, we're foolish. God has asked us to all the time in every way, every day make much of him. And you're going to say your vocation is off limits. Remember Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What was this on the heels of? God explaining all the work that he had done in creation. And then he says in verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Man was created in God's image. Man was blessed by God. And God gave man the blessing of procreation, which we often recognize, but he gave God or gave man the blessing of what? Vocation, work. What are you supposed to do, Adam and Eve? Subdue the earth, have dominion over it. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, as just to make sure God was communicating clearly, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Man in the image of God, man in perfection, man before sin, was to, with his wife helping him, to labor to protect God's glory, to foster God's glory, to keep God's glory, to allow God's glory to flourish through the production of God's creation. That, what is that? That's work. Don't seek to escape work because in work we find the glory of God given to man in our efforts for him. Work is not bad because God says it's good. And you, in his image, are crowned with purpose and glory when you labor on his behalf. Turn to Psalm chapter 8. Every once in a while, I'll read a psalm of David, and I just wonder what he was thinking as the Spirit was animating him, and he was illuminating him, and he was writing these things. And this is one of them where you read this psalm, and it's almost like David's finding himself amazed at God's transcendence and his, his eminence. He's other, he's bigger, he's better than anything, and he's, he's here. And then you get to chapter 8, verse 3 to 5. You can read it with me. When I look at your heavens, David's responding to the work of God, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place. What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Man is crowned with glory and honor. What does that look like? 
Read verse 6. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. What's that sound like? Work. The crown and the glory and the honor is work. Work is good according to God. Mankind has responsibility and culpability in our work between us and God for others to God. Recognize, Christian, work is not demeaning. Instead, it's a path to glory because God created us to bear his image, to reflect his glory to his creation. And his work is our glory, so our work might reflect his glory as well. We need to be reminded that work is not the result of the fall. Man was made to work because the God who made man was a working class God. He worked. Bereshit bara, in the beginning, he created. Man was made to be creative with his mind and with his hands to produce, to foster, to secure. Work is a major part of the dignity of our existence. And yet, as we all know, sin has made work hard. Sin caused work to be difficult and inefficient, but take note, not cursed. Nothing in the creation account tells us that Adam and Eve were lazy before the curse of sin. Sometimes we have this image uh, in our mind of them wandering around and picking fruit and the glory of their honeymoon, but God gave them work to do. And as perfect humanity, I can only imagine they did it pretty well. But with sin came the thistles and the thorns and the blighty products of their work. But God didn't say stop working. He said, this means of dignity that I created for you will now be hard. Disorder, chaos, death, seeks to paint a veneer of indignity on our work. But Christians, we cannot allow this. Our work on behalf of God is how we reflect God's glory. Consider Jesus. You heard a little bit about this a week or so ago. Jesus was known as the builder. We often translate the carpenter, Mark chapter 6, verse 3. There's no indication in Jesus' life that he was uh, avoiding any sort of work. In fact, the opposite as Jesus lived in and endured life in a sin-cursed and fallen world, he used the majority of his life to honor his father with what? Work. He was a, a laborer. Sometimes people want to picture Jesus as like a fine furniture craftsman or a custom home builder or something like that. He's labeled as a builder, labeled as a carpenter. It's not necessarily a compliment. It's just what he was. To be a builder was common. To be a farmer meant you had a special skill and you had land. Inherent in Jesus' title, he didn't have either. To be a builder meant you worked hard and did what you were told. Jesus worked hard and did what he was told. Don't fear work, friend. And don't fail to work because work is not optional according to God's word. You can turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul is trying to help these young believers 
in Thessalonica who are passionate about Christ's return. Uh, they're fixed uh, in their mind on the king of heaven, hoping and longing for him to come back to them. And as they long for heaven, they find earth loses its appeal and all that comes along with earth is kind of tarnished on them. And they start to devalue what they're doing on earth and they become idle. And they rightly understand they should long for heaven, but they fail to grasp the dignity of work and the glory that we reflect on God in our work. And so in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 and 9, Paul says, hey, you didn't get this laziness from us. This wasn't by our example. When we were with you, we were working hard with you. We didn't even eat your bread. We worked our tails off to give you a good example of how you should live. Then look at chapter 3, verse 10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Paul says there's no excuse for idleness, no excuse for laziness. Instead, work quietly or even subtly with dignity and earn your own living. Work is not optional according to God's Word. Does work homogenous? Do we all have the same responsibilities, same capabilities, same culpabilities before God? Of course not. But we're all required and called to work. Paul says the same thing with more force in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. He says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In the context of living a life of honor and dignity, it's to model God's care for the responsibility he's put in front of us, and how do we normally naturally do that? Work. So when you're able, how you're able, you work. But who's the work for? Isn't it for us? Of course it is. It's for our stuff, for our future, for our family. Or not. Work should always pursue obedience to the greatest commandments. Again, work is not separated from our lives of worship to God. And our lives of worship to God are not limited to, but must include our lives of work. That medieval idea of sacred work and secular work that such a fabrication has plagued Christians throughout the ages and is still plaguing Christians. Get rid of it. Get over it. Because what you do and how you do is how you live all of your life for the glory of God. All of your life is to be about Christ. All of your life is to be lived for His glory. Colossians 3.17 again reminds us, whatever you do, word or deed, all of it, everywhere, everything is to be about God. For many Christians, the barrier between Sunday and Monday is like the Grand Canyon. They just can't seem to get across it. But it should be just like a little crack in the sidewalk that we pass without even noticing because all of our lives is to be lived for the glory of God. Remember, Jesus, on the crowded temple mount days before he would die for the sins of the world, he's tested by the religious elite. And they want to know what the most important thing is, Jesus. What's the most important command? And obviously they're trying to trap him and trick him. But Jesus doesn't squabble with their games. He just answers in truth. In Mark chapter 12, verses 29 to 31, he says, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And for you, brother, sister, full-time, part-time, no-time, retired-time, whatever-time, 
what you call work has to be able to foster these two things. If it can't, if it doesn't, then quit. Well, excuse me, look for a better job. When it allows you to do these things, make a plan and get out of it. This is your prime calling in life, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your time, with all your every effort and affection to love God. Don't you think that should be able to happen at work? And to love your neighbor. What should our jobs be doing? Loving God, loving neighbor. Jesus says nothing supersedes these most comprehensive commands. But Christians often leave worship at church and work at the factory. They silo their lives out. Well, that's who I am there. This is who I am here. If that's true of you, Jesus isn't king. Because Jesus says every inch of your life is mine. Our work should always allow for and be a place where we foster our obedience to God and worshiping him and loving him. Sometimes it takes creative application, but it can always be accomplished unless we're falling into evil and immorality in our work. You can love God and others through your work. We'll unpack this over the next few weeks, but you can be creative for the glory of God. And with those thoughts kind of set in our minds, somehow we'll jump into our text in Colossians chapter 3. Verses 22 to 23, we're going to essentially see, go to the next slide. Essentially, we'll see three arenas where our daily grind is turned to eternal glory. The earthly calling in 22 and 23, the heavenly motivation in verse 24, and then the eschatological comfort at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. And then what you'll see is there's from those 17 Principles that bring glory to God in the grind of mankind's work. No, I wasn't planning to get all these done today, but that's, that's, where, you, that's where we're headed, just so you know. This is an extremely practical passage that helps us understand just to stay in your lane, keep your head down, and work hard for the glory of God. And guess what? God's receiving glory from your work. There's meaty, practical truth in these verses we'll just take the time to apply it, we'll find that our daily grind can bring God eternal glory. So we'll begin in verse 22 and 3, considering our earthly calling. Read it with me again, verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men. And with the backdrop of the glory of God and, and his image and kind of this infused dignity that he gives our work, notice the very first word, bondservant. Probably better translated slave. What a word that would immediately bring fear and, and anger and terror and shame and indignity. The Roman world was full of slaves. One of the greatest threats to Rome was the uprising of slaves. Many slaves were the product of war. Some slaves were the product of procreation. Some slaves were the product of their own choices and a lack of economic options. But slaves were those in the caste of humanity in the Roman world that were comprehensively viewed as property. In the legal system and the economic operations of Rome, slaves were essential but universally looked down upon. While it's very true that slavery in the ancient 
Roman world is different from slavery. In our nation's past, no one in the ancient world desired slavery. Slavery took away autonomy that we all value. Slavery marred the dignity that we all seek. Slavery stole the future that we all pursue. The treatment of slaves varied from house to house and region to region, but nowhere in the ancient world were slaves considered equal to their masters. Everywhere in the ancient world, the highest slave in the most important position was still viewed as what? Just a slave. A tool for the advancement of the master. Again, nowhere in the ancient world were slaves considered equal to their masters except for one place. Let your eyes look up to verse 11. Speaking of the unifying force of the work of Christ and our salvation that produces sanctification and unity in the body of Christ, Paul makes this mind-bending comment. Here there was not Greek and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. You see, friend, though Paul was not on a mission of emancipation in the world, he was a total abolitionist in the church. He says there is no place for any sort of a class within the body of Christ. There is no indignity, no shame, no heartache, no suffering that the child of God need bear as a slave in the church because being in Christ is all that they need on this pilgrimage on this earth. And yet this letter of Colossians, if you think way back to when we started it, carried by Epaphras and possibly another man named Philemon, who was a runaway slave who'd gotten saved. Maybe some slaves of masters were in this church with their master. So Paul takes head on the most difficult issue in dealing with work, our humble identity. And notice he doesn't say, hey, slaves, you got to know that you're kings in God's eyes. He just says, look, slaves, if, if that's who you are on earth, we know in truth that you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. But you're a slave on earth, so this is how you live. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21 to 24, Paul tells the Corinthians, if you were saved as a slave, don't worry over it. Don't fret over it. God saved you as a slave. Live for him as a slave. If you can get free, be free. If you can gain your freedom, Paul says to do it. If Rome, in Roman slave law, there were some options and opportunities for some slaves to pursue freedom. But Paul's very clear. Our earthly identity, no matter how low, our earthly occupation, no matter how base, no matter how society views it, our earthly job that shapes our earthly identity can be so insignificant that others view us as no better than a tool in the tool shed. But we as slaves can bring glory to God. That's Paul's point. So if we're to take a moment and argue from the greater or the worse to the lesser or the better, if this is true for slaves who are property and owned by someone, would it not be true for employees? Absolutely it is. And what's the end goal for these slaves? What is the end goal for us as employees in our humble identity? End of verse 24, you are serving the Lord Christ. See, our humble identity does not keep us from honoring God. In fact, it's the platform for honoring God. When, when you hear someone called a slave, many things probably come to mind, but I want you to think of one in particular. 
How can being a slave, someone with the humblest of identities, bring glory to God? Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Jesus tells us and models for us precisely through the words of Paul to the Philippians. If you think your lowly temporal job can't bring glory to God, friend, and unless you're active engaged in immorality, it absolutely can. Remember Paul's instructing these believers in Philippi that he loved and trying to help them get along. He says you need to be humble. And then to illustrate humility, he goes right to our Savior. Look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not crown equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What's your guess at the word servant there in verse 7? By taking the form of a servant, slave, just like Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. It's doulos. It's our humble identity. Christ actively took, he purposefully seized, intentionally captured for himself the shame and the indignity and the sorrow and the humiliation that went along with the identity of a slave. Don't tell Christ your lowly job can't glorify God. Jesus allowed himself to set aside the glory of divinity and pursue the humiliation of slavery. This world will tell you you have to have a title. You have to have a resume. You have to have a LinkedIn. You have to have a trophy case full of awards to be impressive. But Jesus has already shown you what you need is what he has done in his humiliation. He brought illumination to our souls no matter how dark. In his humiliation, he brought salvation to our lives no matter how lost we were. In his humility, humility as a slave, our king reversed the curse for us. And when we believe that what he has done is what we could not, that he lived a perfect life. And when we believe he has given to us what we couldn't earn and we believe he's taken from us what we couldn't get rid of in ourselves with the wrath that God owed against us, when we believe by grace through faith in Christ and only him, when we believe him, no matter what your life is, you can glorify God. Even as Paul says to these souls in Colossae, even slaves, this is how you live for the glory of the eternal God and the temporal lives that you find yourselves in. That sacrifice of our Savior in his humiliation, in his life as a slave, is what we now celebrate as believers. 